Hi, I'm Liz Butler-Duran. I'm the author of the book that I am about to read to you about the 29 years I spent searching for my birth mother. While this story is about being adopted and searching for answers, you don't have to be adopted to search for answers within your own family. Personalities and conflicts rule any family situation. So if you've ever felt for a moment like maybe there's something else out there that you should know about yourself, you'll enjoy this journey. And thank you so much for coming along with me. All About You is a memoir. I have tried to recreate events, locales, and conversations from my memories of them. In order to maintain their anonymity in some instances, I have changed the names of individuals and places. I may have changed some identifying characteristics and details, such as physical properties, occupations, and places of residence. Chapter 1. A Forward These are things I know to be true about myself. I was an overly dramatic child. This led to impulsive behaviors and moods that swung back and forth like the rope swing hanging from the live oak tree in my parents' backyard. This led me to being an overly dramatic teenager and then, without interruption, an overly dramatic woman. If I were a superhero, I would have been the exaggerator. This gift of imagination was the best thing that ever happened to me. It took me on flights of fancy, carrying me beyond the limited imaginations of ordinary people. It allowed me to see the world from different perspectives. It led me on impulsive adventures and made me braver than I actually was. Sometimes, I think if I hadn't allowed this part of my personality to take over, I would have had a quieter life with a lot less heartbreak and confusion. I wouldn't have lived in a world where I felt I was the brunt of some cosmic joke being whispered about me behind my back. I could have kept my blinders on and walked through life without asking questions, without wanting my life to be different from what it was. Something was different, though, and I knew it. I felt it. From the time I was a young girl, this idea crept into my mind that I was not the person everyone told me I was. This idea became the thread of a different color that wove itself into every moment of my life, creating a tapestry stained with a secret. I could tell you the story about all the adventures of my life, my failures, unrequited loves, two divorces, the jobs I had, the struggles finding myself. I could tell a story about the success of my life, finally finding the love of my life, having four beautiful and kind children, and the amazing job I love. But no matter what I was doing or how I was feeling, this other story, this idea, was always on my mind and in my heart. My obsession with it led me to tell this story many times and to anyone who would listen. I have told it sitting in loud, smoky bars, curled up on a friend's sofa having a late-night chat, on sunny beaches with my toes in the sand, at fancy restaurants, and over long, cold cups of coffee. I never really know how to tell my story. Where do I start? It has been sitting so long with me now that the questions and the answers have become muddled in my mind. It is the melody I can never quite get out of my head. For so long, I would tell this story with no real answers and no idea of how to get them. So many times the topic has come up in conversation because I was looking for help. What new insights could someone else give me to put me on the right path? So it usually starts at the point where it is the most raw. I have always wanted to write my story, but I was anxious about reliving it. Not all of it. Some of it was quite good. 
but most of it was hard. I didn't want to be that young, vulnerable girl again. Speaking is easier. I can choose not what to dwell on. The pain can be easily masked or ignored. If I write it, then I need to look at all these emotions, not just mine, but those of the people around me, the ones who loved me, that were affected by it. I even asked a friend to write it for me, but he said he couldn't. It had to be my voice. I spent the better part of a morning in front of my computer with a microphone on. I believed that I could speak it and let the truth flow out of me. Maybe listening to myself would be helpful. I settled into my desk chair with a cup of hot tea in my hands and the silence of the house surrounding me. I started at what I thought was the beginning and explored the ways it made me feel. I spent several hours feeling the unencumbered emotions and letting them come through uncensored. This was just for me. No one would ever have to hear this if I chose not to share it. I was emotionally drained by the second hour, and eventually I needed a break. I just wanted to step away from everything for a moment and go for a walk, clear my head, figure out how to move to the next phase of the story. And then I realized I had never actually started the recording. After that, the words were constantly swimming around in my head, waking me up at night and lingering, preventing sleep's peaceful return. I had opened Pandora's box, and I knew if I wanted to expel the demons, I was going to have to let them out. It wasn't going to be easy for anyone to read, myself included. But it was time. I had spent too many years spinning my tail for it to remain in me any longer, torturing me with its memories. At the very least, this was going to be my therapy. Who is my birth mother? Why did she give me up? Where is she now? What does she look like? Will she be like me? Does she think of me? My journey was a long one. I had no idea in the beginning that it was to be an unbelievable 29-year venture. It began, as most things do, with an idea. A simple cast-off of an idea at first, but the spark it ignited became a constant that never left me. The friends and lovers in my life are a huge part of the story. They listened to the tale and offered to help. They debated all of the curiosities with me. They encouraged me, discouraged me, offered to go on search parties with me, and begged me not to go. I remember the day of resolution, the day I finally got what I always wanted. It was the one step I had to take all by myself. I wasn't used to that. I had depended on the emotional support of so many, and they couldn't take this last step with me. How will I know what to think if they're not there to hash it all out with me? How will I know what to say if they aren't there to coach me? What will I wear? I took a moment, sitting in my car, trying not to cry, to send a quick message to each person that had stood by me and supported me. I told them that I wished I could put them in my pocket and take them with me. Like me, they were waiting for this day and were just as invested. Knowing that they were all waiting with as much anxiety as I was had made the last steps a little easier. I got out of my car on a hot summer day in my new pink dress, and I knocked on her door. Chapter 2. The Beginning It all started with a picture. We had never done a full family picture before, 
Sure, there were pictures of my big brother Jonathan and me propped up on shag rug covered boxes at Grant's department store in whatever my mother put us in, usually something itchy. This next portrait would replace the space in the frame that held every 8x10 image from year to year. My father always carried a smaller copy with him in his wallet. He never replaced the old ones. He just kept them as a small stack tucked neatly away in one of the leather folds. He would say to me, Elizabeth, do you want to see a picture of two monkeys? Yes, I would reply. The latest picture of us would emerge. I would roll with giggles. This silly exchange was repeated often. We were all matched up for this family first. Daddy, looking like he did every Sunday, handsome in one of his church suits. Mom, looking very pretty with a new perm in her hair and her signature hot pink lipstick. Pretty in Pink by CoverGirl. I remember when the color was discontinued and my mother went from store to store replenishing her supply. She stored the lipsticks in the refrigerator after she heard that would keep them fresh longer. Vegetables and lipstick. Interestingly, she was adamantly against the wearing of makeup. She thought it made women look cheap. The exception was the lipstick. Somehow, this was fine. Then there was my big brother Jonathan, a skinny 14-year-old who would have rather been anywhere else in the world and 10-year-old me. The photographer was set up in the church fellowship hall. Smells of coffee and crispy cream donuts filled every inch. I loved that smell, the smell of church being over and letting the wiggles out. I watched each family gathering up its children and taking turns sitting in front of the brown marbled background for the photo. When it was our turn, I got the special seat on the stool. The photographer's assistant spun it higher and higher to make sure I was the right height and made me laugh a lot to get me ready for the picture. It was when we got the picture back that I first saw it. What I saw was me, standing out, next to three people who looked so much like each other. My pale skin and blue eyes were a stark contrast to the darker-skinned, brown-eyed people with me. I can't explain how or why, but it hit me like something I had always known and finally had proof of. The missing link. For me, the image was striking. I sat there and studied it. I was even kidding when I pointed it out to my mother and said, I must be adopted. Well, you would think I had just asked my mother if she was a virgin when she got married. It did not go over well. I wasn't sure what I had asked. It was so horrible, but I got a resounding no and immediately felt very bad that I had said it. But the feeling stuck with me, so I had to test it out on my daddy when he came home from work. I waited for him in the driveway when he pulled up from a long day in his dentist office with his patients. He flashed his lights at me as I jumped up and down and waved. Hey, Daddy, our pictures came in from the church. Oh, that's so nice. Let me take a look. He rolled up the windows, and I skipped from foot to foot, waiting for him to emerge from his car. Yes, I said very pointedly, handing it over to him. Take a good look and tell me what you notice about it. He pushed his glasses further up his nose and pretended to examine the picture very seriously. Well, I see a very good-looking man. Oh, that's me. Daddy! He smiled and returned his focus to the picture. I see your mother is there. And, oh, yes, there it is. Two monkeys. No, Daddy, (laughs) I sighed. Look at me. Don't I look different? Different from what? He asked, removing his glasses and handing the picture back to me. He started to walk into the house. Me! I look so different from y'all. Look 
again. I thrust the image at him. Elizabeth. He stopped and looked down at me. He was tired from a long day at work and clearly didn't see the need for this interrogation. You look fine, just the way you are. Well, I think I look like I'm adopted or something. Oh, monkey. He stopped and turned to look at me. Why would you say such a ridiculous thing? We looked at each other. He clearly had lost his patience with this conversation. Don't be silly. Come on now. Your mother will be ready for dinner. He walked into the house and left me holding the picture. And an idea. I remember this well. I remember thinking something wasn't right. I had done something wrong, and I couldn't figure out why it made my stomach hurt just a little bit. And then I did a very grown-up thing. I decided something. I decided they were lying to me. A seed was planted that day, and it grew. It grew without even having to tend it. It took over a little place in my heart, or maybe just in my ears, and whispered to me, something is different here. Chapter 3 Who's your mama, child? I was born in 1968 in Charleston, South Carolina. I was raised across the harbor in Mount Pleasant, still a modest, lovely little town when I was born. Its one block downtown, known as the Old Village, easily supported its population of 7,000 people. Pitt Street was the heart of this charming town and supported everyone's needs. Beyond the Old Village were farms and tomato fields, the remnants of an old pecan plantation, and the hint of growth that would take over this once sleepy city by the time I was an adult. It was the beginning of the end of Mount Pleasant's charms that would provide the backdrop of my childhood. My mother, Catherine Donaldson, was a Mount Pleasant girl born into a family that could trace its ancestry to several of the first Charlestonians who settled in the area in the 1680s. The names Legree, Lucas, and Simmons filled our family tree, extending our roots deep into the founding of this colony. Catherine was the third child and second daughter of Robert and Catherine Donaldson. Her birth would claim the life of her mother and leave her father sadly widowed with two toddlers and an infant. Her grandmother, whom everyone called Mamie, stepped in and took my mother to live with her. Mamie sent her teenage daughter, Rosalie, my mother's aunt, the few short blocks down the street to help her brother-in-law care for the other children. It wasn't long before Rosalie was married to Catherine's father and had two more children to add to the family. This was a family strategy that Mamie was familiar with and would probably have encouraged, wanting to keep her family bloodline intact. When Mamie was 12, her father drowned, leaving her mother with three children to raise alone. As the eldest, Mamie was sent to a Charleston boarding school, and soon after, her mother married her father's brother. My mother did not return to her father's home full-time to live with her brother and sisters and her aunt-slash-stepmother for many years. Perhaps Mamie was worried that Robert would be unable to properly care for her as she grew into a busy toddler and then an active little girl. She continued to live with Mamie and Mamie's bachelor son, Legree. Her life was quiet. She was raised more as an only child. It suited, or perhaps created, her nature as a contentedly solitary person. She was frequently sent to join the larger family dinners down the street. She did not enjoy having to wait at the table until everyone was finished. 
watching her father and aunt slash stepmother enjoying the after-dinner cigarettes. She would have to wait to escape until the cigarette butts were crushed into the dinner plates. She always hated the smell of cigarettes and the images this conjured for her. Once my mother entered high school, Mamie decided that it would be better for Catherine to move back in with her father and siblings. Mamie was concerned that her granddaughter had been separated from them for too long. Everyone agreed that it would be best to have all the siblings under one roof. One very crowded roof. Her father's house was much smaller than Mamie's. Her father, his wife, and now five children were living there, and her father's elderly mother had moved in. There was only one bathroom for eight people. I imagine my mother was not very comfortable with this sudden shift in arrangements. Her previously quiet house and the sanctity of her own room were now gone, and she was thrust into a busy household with rhythms and routines that were foreign to her. It wasn't long before she was back every weekend at Mamie's house. My mother excelled in school, winning academic awards that allowed her visits and tours of South Carolina colleges, but her family was unable to afford the luxury of sending its female members off for a higher education. After high school, she worked for the Village Shop, the fancy dress clothier on Pitt Street right in the heart of her town, happily dressing women for parties and social events that she preferred not to attend. The idea of social events unnerved her. She would rather stay home and listen to her records and read her romance novels. She would watch her paychecks go right back into the hands of her employers as the beautiful dresses on the racks tempted her. Her uncle teased her that she needed a job at the post office so she could at least bring home something useful from work. Later, she took a job in Charleston at the local paper handling the classified ads. She was content in her job, enjoying weekends on the beaches, casually dating some of the boys she knew, teaching Sunday school at the Presbyterian Church, and singing in the choir. Chapter 4. Papa's Got a Brand New Bag While my mother was lounging on Charleston beaches or taking boat rides to Crab Bank to hunt for shark's teeth and old Civil War musket balls, my father, John Butler, was growing up on a farm in the mid-state area of South Carolina. When they were not in school, my father and his older sister, Elizabeth, spent their days tending to the animals, running around fields of cotton, and listening to the songs of the field hands who had worked the land. It was the Great Depression. Dad's father, Lonnie, got a job with the Works Progress Administration, helped constructing South Carolina highways to support the family throughout this challenging time. His mother, Beulah, was an English teacher. My dad and aunt grew up in a tiny white Victorian farmhouse built by their grandfather. The kitchen was a separate building located behind the main house until my father was in high school. Together, he and his father enclosed an old back porch to accommodate a new, modern kitchen. They did not have indoor plumbing until my father was in his 20s. Although education was very important to the Butler family, they did not have the money to send my father to a four-year college, so he started his higher education at Spartanburg Junior College. The first spark of my father's entrepreneurial life happened there. He was one of the few students who had a car. He drove into town once a week to buy snacks and sodas from the local grocery store and brought them back to sell to his fellow students. Soon, World War II broke out, and my father signed up for service in the United States Navy. He never saw active duty because of his poor eyesight, so he worked as a medic stationed in Virginia. He spent his furloughs in New York City, seeing the sights 
and loving the shows the Rockettes performed at Radio City Music Hall. The GI Bill sent him to college and medical school where he studied dentistry. In 1959, my father became the second dentist to set up shop in the quiet city of Mount Pleasant. His practice grew, and his keen sense of business acumen found him purchasing the largest building in the heart of the old village, right at the end of Pitt Street. He took this three-story imposing feature, moved his offices into the first floor, and rented out apartment spaces above. This sparked a love of real estate that was never far from my father's mind. My father's move into town caught everyone's attention. The new bachelor dentist with a handsome face, quick to smile and easy to talk to. He quickly made friends with his fellow shop owners on Pitt Street. They all gathered for an early morning cup of coffee at Coleman's Hardware Store before the open for business signs were hung out. He was sweet and funny. I have never heard anything other than a kind word said about my daddy. A catch for any woman to be sure but my mother quickly snatched up this eligible bachelor. I always loved to hear the story of the first time Dad took Mom to meet his family up on the farm. They left right after church in Mount Pleasant, and Mom had chosen to wear a new suit with a fur collar and a striking pillbox hat in an identical color. She was the height of fashion, with her white gloves and leather clutch bag. When she arrived, her future mother-in-law greeted her wearing a calico dress and apron and served barbecue. Mom would always look back on this memory and laugh at what a spectacle she must have looked like to these people she would grow to love. Late to the marriage game, at 27, my mother was a good match for my father, 11 years her senior, who was ready to start a family. They married in 1963 in a small service in the Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church with a reception at her father's home. My parents bought the most charming house one door down from my father's office. It was a wooden, white, two-story home nestled behind a white picket fence. From its full front porch, you could sit and watch all the activity of Pitt Street and see who was coming and going. Anything my mother needed was literally one block away, from groceries to the pharmacy to clothing. Even her church was down the street. I can remember walking to church on Sunday mornings, my brother and I following my parents, watching my mother's legs and her modestly high heels clicking down the sidewalk. Once we got to church, we sat in our pew, always the last pew in the church. Mom preferred the very back, so we could get out quickly when it was over. God forbid someone was sitting in our pew. Once you sat, you didn't move. You looked straight ahead. You were not even allowed to look behind you to see the other parishioners coming in and what they were doing or wearing. Even if they laughed or did something else that made you just die to turn around and look. Straight stares ahead. My parents spent their newlywed weekends up at Dad's family farm, visiting and enjoying time out on Lake Santee in his boat. Daddy was an excellent water skier. He was a patient teacher of the sport. And while my mother had no intention of getting her hair wet, his younger cousins were eager to give it a try. Soon, though, my mother shifted her husband's focus back to the home life she wanted to create. She was not content heading out of town every weekend— spending time at the family farm that his sister Elizabeth now called home. She wanted to stay in Mount Pleasant, going to church on Sundays and teaching her Sunday school classes. Of course, my sweet father bent to the wishes of his new wife. He took great pride in becoming an active church member, even acting as the church treasurer for several years. Their only son, Jonathan, was born in the first year of their marriage, one month before their wedding anniversary. It was a difficult birth for my mother. The labor was long, 
and no one had truly prepared my mother for childbirth. Being raised by a grandmother with high Victorian ideals of things you didn't speak of left this aspect of womanhood shrouded in mystery. No doubt, thoughts of her own mother's demise in childbirth added to my mother's fears. She adamantly announced to my father that she would not be having any more children. My father hoped for a larger family, specifically a little girl. So they adopted me in the summer of 1968, when my older brother was four and a half. It was a scorching, hot August day in South Carolina. Along with my Aunt Elizabeth, my namesake, the four of them made the two-hour drive to pick up their new baby girl in the city of Columbia. The drive was long in the heat of Daddy's huge green Ford sedan. We had that car for a long time. It eventually became my mother's car, and I spent a lot of time riding from errand to errand with her until I went to school. One day, we were in Grant's department store, and I had my eye on a doll. Her name was Busy Lizzie, and she came with a feather duster, a tiny ironing board, and a vacuum cleaner, and a very short skirt. Just exactly what was the message they were sending to little girls. I begged and begged for that doll, and finally, Mom agreed to buy it for me. The three of us climbed back into the big green Ford, and I decided that Busy Lizzie would sit next to me in the front seat. No one wore seatbelts back then, but I got it in my head that she would be safer with one on. I pulled the belt around us and was buckling it in next to Busy Lizzie. It was rather tight, and once I tried to get settled in, the extra pressure from the seatbelt popped the doll's head off. I screamed! Mom was so angry with me. I cried and cried over that doll. She was never quite the same. Her head would just pop right off in the middle of vacuuming. My aunt and my brother Jonathan stayed outside the Children's Bureau of South Carolina, allowing my mother and father time to meet the agent and their new daughter. It was that situation that allowed my brother to be one of the first to meet me. Aunt Elizabeth spotted a woman walking up with an adorable baby with bright blue eyes and wearing a new, pink, smocked dress. She stopped her and asked if that was the butler baby. Upon hearing that it was, she stopped to coo over me and let Jonathan meet his new sister. I was six months old. I returned with them that very night to start my life as a butler. A charmed life lay ahead of me with privileged parents and every opportunity they could afford to give me. They named me Elizabeth Legree Butler, crowning me with the names of their ancestors. They toted me about town, showing off the newest family member. My mother's quiet house was quickly filled with well-wishers and the casseroles and cakes that allowed any good Southern woman entrance into a home. My mother kept a carefully handwritten list of all the visitors that came to see the new baby, along with the gifts or food items they had brought, so that gracious thank-you notes could be written. Everyone was so pleased with the new child that Dr. and Mrs. Butler had adopted. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I won't know any of this for another 15 years. If you're enjoying this story and would like to enjoy it more without any ads, come on over to my Patreon. For $5 a month, you'll get all the new episodes ad-free, plus bonus photos and images from my family, including the infamous picture from when I was 10 years old that started this entire journey. I hope to see you there. Otherwise, I'll see you next week for more of All About You, an adopted child's memoir. Bye!